Lucky Shot brings you this episode of the QA. It is the end of the month, which means it is QA time, and it is the May 2022 edition of the QA for Guns and Tactics. I want to thank all of you for spending a few minutes of your day watching this video or checking it out wherever you get your podcasts. The audio version is available on various podcast locations, so if you are stumbling across this on YouTube, but you're thinking, man, I would just love to listen to this in the car or maybe on the commute or whatever, check us out wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check us out online, and we do have links to the podcast locations. We have news, articles, all that stuff. If you guys are new here, welcome. This is our end of the month segment where I answer all of your questions. The best way to get your question on the show is to email us. That email address is shown below. It is theqa at gunsandtactics.com. You email me your questions, they make it to the show, we answer them, and plus we give away a prize here at the end of the month. So if you're new, welcome. Please send your questions. If you are a regular listener or watcher, do appreciate you having you back. And uh, also, I did want to address one comment on last month's QA, and he was mad because it took me five minutes to answer the first question. Number one, that's why we have chapter markers, okay? You can check the description below, and there's chapter markers on where the questions are. But number two... This is a regular series for us where we check in with our regular viewers and we also kind of give them an update of what's going on with the channel, news, things like that. So yes, there is going to be a little bit of channel update and news first before we get into the questions. Deal with it. Uh, speaking of that, I did want to address uh, something that happened recently. Those of you guys that are regular watchers noticed that a lot of our content was just overnight removed from YouTube. We lost 77 videos and we were prohibited from posting for one week. Uh, now, I'm not gonna get into all the details just yet. I might do a future video addressing that, but what it came down to was that a link that we had in our description to another social media network, a firearms-focused network, was in violation of YouTube Terms of Service. And it was through no fault of our own because when we made that link, it was going to content that we created, our channel, if you will. However, that network recently got bought out by somebody else. They changed their landing links and everything like that. So when you'd click on that link, it took you to uh, terms or content that was in violation of YouTube's terms of service. And that's just the way it was. Uh, so a lot of good has come from it. Uh, we learned from that. We've learned to be more cautious on what links we're going to be putting in there, basically content that we can control. Uh, Speaking of that, we would just love for you to go to the webpage. Bookmark it, check it, we have news, we have updates. We try to really keep you updated on what's going on in the industry, new products, company announcements. Eric, uh, who is our webmaster, does an amazing job of keeping the webpage up to date with stuff. I check it every day because he finds press releases or new product announcements that I don't see, so it's a way for me to keep updated, but he does a really great job with that. Plus, it's all content that we can control, and we can put some content on there that is not appropriate for YouTube, because YouTube does have some terms uh, as far as like manufacturing firearms, things like that, and we can't put that on YouTube, so that might be things that we looked at putting on the webpage in the future or something like that. So check that out. Uh, but getting back to the story, uh, we reached out, we appealed all of that, and I will say some good has come from it. We created a great connection at YouTube. We now have a rep at YouTube that you know handles our channel. Uh, I guess we're kind of big enough now to have that connection, which generally uh, I didn't know if we were or not. So generally I, I thought channels our size might not be eligible, but we are, and we have a great rep who is very responsive to our communication and he was very helpful. So I do want to give him a shout out. I don't know if he'll watch this or not, but I do want to give him a shout out. Uh, having a person to really connect to and learn about things was awesome. Not only that, but we got most, uh, there's one video that's waiting, but we got our videos restored. So we did lose uh, some of the tags and stuff. So we're 
kind of catching up on the backlog of updating things, but we did restore our views and we did restore our comments and we were able to restore a lot of those videos to rebuild our library because that was a huge chunk and a lot of those videos were really good performing videos and in my opinion, some of my best work because they were my latest work where I've kind of really started to even perfect my craft even more. Like I still have a long ways to go when I'm learning about like video stuff, but I'm proud of the stuff we've been making recently and I think the quality of our videos lately is, is the best it's ever been. So I was really uh, kind of hurt to see some of those go down, but they're back and, and we've learned from it and we're gonna keep moving forward and keep trying to grow the channel. So that's a little bit what's going on there. If you guys have any questions about it, leave a comment below. But really, I don't wanna hear comments about like how YouTube is anti-gun or anything like that because my experience is not that. They allow us to make the content and yes, it is their house, their rules. I'm not trying to sound like I'm a pro YouTube you know, company man or whatever because I'm not getting paid by YouTube to say any of this. Uh, however, I will say that just my experience with our customer service rep or account rep uh, has been pretty positive and I appreciate you know, what they're doing to look, to make things better. And there was more conversations that I'm not gonna get into but um, even though it kind of sucked, uh, a lot of good has come from it as well. So I'll just leave it at that. Now, other channel news. We just hit 80,000 subscribers, which is awesome news. And kind of tracking back, uh, December of last year, we were at 70,000. And then it took us four months uh, to April 14th to get 75. And now here we are, end of May, and we just hit 80. So within a little, like six weeks, we gained 5,000 subscribers. So for all the new subscribers, welcome. Love to have you here. We are on the road to 100. We want to hit 100,000. That's going to be our next milestone, and we're going to have a ton of giveaways that I'm working on with manufacturers, and we're going to get stuff on hand uh, so it doesn't... The 50K giveaway kind of, you know, was hit with COVID availability and everything like that, and unfortunately, it kind of faded away. So I'm going to make up for it with the 100K giveaway. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff, and we'll probably uh, start to promote that as we start to get a little bit more, but... We're really excited about that and I'm really looking forward to that next major milestone of 100,000. And we're gonna be updating some things, we're gonna change the look of some things, we're gonna to try to optimize some things so I can be a better YouTuber. I'm still learning at this uh, and I'm really excited where the journey is gonna take us. So thank you guys for the support, I really do appreciate it. Those of you guys that watch regularly know that I do treat you QA viewers as the inner circle. So that's a little bit of a channel news, what's updates going on. Uh, upcoming news is TriggerCon is coming to Kansas in October. If you go to TriggerConShow.com, uh, I don't know if the webpage, as of you're watching this, it's gonna be really close to going live and it is open to the public, but that's the TriggerCon convention or TriggerCon show and it's gonna be in Kansas this year. It used to be on the West Coast and now they're going to the Midwest. So this is gonna be in the beautiful Flint Oak uh, gun club or conservation club. I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but it's going to be in just outside of Wichita, Kansas, and it is open to the public. I will be there. If you are going or you're from the Midwest and want a great chance to, you know, see a bunch of cool manufacturer stuff, there's live fire ranges, there's demos, all sorts of stuff. I'll be there. I'd love to meet with you. And if you find me, hit me up. I'll have a patch for you. And uh, let me know in the comments below if you're planning on going to TriggerCon, but that's TriggerCon 2022 in October, just outside of Wichita, Kansas. So check out that. I'll have a link uh, on our webpage and all that stuff too. We'll be promoting some of that. All right, let's get to the questions. First one is a comment from John. What is going on with all the slide malfunctions with the G48, G43X? The revised slide stop from Glock did not solve the problem. People say it's the shield arms mags. Uh, the Glock reps blame those. Uh, but nobody wants to say what's actually going on. And uh, I replied to you as well on that comment, but I have uh, two, actually technically three, I have two 43Xs and a 48, and I also have a 43, but um, 
I haven't had any issues. So my sample size of three guns, a 48, two 43Xs, zero issues whatsoever. I've actually had some issues with the uh, shield mags, which I will have an upcoming video on those, things to look out for. And all the 43Xs that I've seen in various classes and people that I know, I have not seen any slide stop issues. So if you wanna provide some more info, maybe some other details or whatever, I can do some checking too, but I'm not aware of it, so I, I don't know. All right, we do have Six people that contributed questions. Uh, Kevin, we'll start with Kevin's corner. Kevin, I, I don't even, I lost count. It was probably like 30 questions. Um, and Kevin, I can't, I, I can't believe the amount of time that you dedicate because like they are like paragraphs going into it. So I appreciate the content. I'm not able to get to all of them. Some of them I did add to the Instructor Craft podcast idea, which is a podcast I want to do where basically if I can find some time and just record some audio, kind of address some of those things that you've brought up, other things that I see. And that'll mainly be more geared towards people that are current firearms instructors, aspiring firearms instructors, uh, or just want to learn about firearms instruction, you know, whatever. I am a firearms instructor. I travel the country teaching classes, so I can share some little nuggets and things like that that I've learned. Uh, just got back from Cleveland a couple weeks ago, and I'm heading down to uh, Metro Minnesota to do another class, and then we have some other stuff scheduled, and I'm doing that uh, through 88 Tactical, so you can check that out. Mainly that's for LE stuff, and then uh, I might be doing some other stuff as we you know, just see what time, but right now I'm mainly focused on video, so that's kind of my main gig right now. But anyways, uh, Kevin, we'll just start with yours. What is your preferred front sight post when zeroing an AR at 50 yards? Because the standard ones are too short. And yes, there is, uh, I'm assuming you're talking about the standard fixed front sight posts, and there is then F marked front sight posts, which were a little bit higher to compensate for a flat top. And then there were companies that were making an extended front sight post. The reality is we just don't see too many fixed front sight posts at classes anymore. They have kind of gone away to the folding sights, which those we don't have to worry about because they are meant to work on the same plane because they are a set generally, like the Magpul ones or whatever. I thought I had a set around from a previous video, but I think I put all that away. So uh, what front sight post? Uh, I can't remember the company. I want to say it was a mainstream company, maybe like Bushmaster or something that was making an extended front sight post that would allow you to use a uh, non-F-marked front sight base with a standard flip-up sight. But the reality is we don't see too many fixed bases anymore in my area. Most pretty much everybody is using, um, you know, free float handguard rails, things like that, that I'm seeing. There are some agencies that still use that, so they have, have those extended ones. But uh, otherwise, if, as long as we're able to zero at 50 yards, we're good to go. And the only reason we are generally zeroing at 50 is to confirm those as backup sites, but pretty much everybody's running an optic right now. But uh, so yes, people are still doing it, but Brownells is who I believe had those extended front sight posts. What are some safe ways to practice reholstering with appendix carry? This is a great topic. I'll be honest, I'm relatively new to appendix carry for a while. Um, I just didn't find it comfortable, but I've started carrying appendix more and more. I have a couple of different holsters that I'm still kind of experimenting with. That, but I am carrying appendix more, and I can probably do a separate video on this. But the reality is, uh, a lot of people have concerns like, oh my gosh, there's a loaded gun pointed right at my junk. Yep, I, I get it, that's fine. I wanna be aware of it. But the gun's not gonna go off in the holster. Assuming you're using a good quality holster that covers the trigger guard, uh, the gun's not just gonna magically go off. Now, if you're using a really crappy holster, I suppose the possibility could happen. But what really happens more often than not when people do have negligent discharges when they're holstering is their finger is not outside of the trigger guard when they're holstering, either appendix or in a standard hip holster, or they had something else that got obstructed, such as a, a jacket, a zipper tail, part of your shirt, whatever it might be. So how I teach reholstering, especially from concealment, is we kind of reverse it from the draw. So 
from the draw, we have to clear our cover garment, draw and present. We do our duty, we do our work, whatever. Now when it's time to reholster, we basically take a pause because we shouldn't be in a hurry to reholster. Yes, there are a couple of circumstances where we might be, but generally speaking, we can take a pause, we can do our post shooting assessment, which I use the acronym of TACO, Threat, Ammo, Communicate, Observe. I can do a separate video on that. We do our TACO and then we kind of reverse it. We clear our cover garment again. We look, make sure everything's clear, finger high and outside of the trigger guard, safety on if you're using a gun with a safety or thumb on the slide, and then we can go ahead and reholster. So like I said, a separate video on that I think would probably be a good idea. What methods work best, what training aids, those are kind of you know things that we just kind of touched on. Uh, what are the most common types of jobs that are done on your milling machine in your shop? I do have a small uh, bench top mill, it's a, a Grizzly, so it's a Chinese mill. Uh, but it does have a DRO and a decent sized table for what I do. Someday I'll upgrade uh, that and the lathe. My lathe is pretty small as well, but truth be told, most often it is a precision drill press. So a lot of times if I'm doing drilling and tapping for a customer, um, so the other day, uh, Lance, he, I know he's a viewer, he was in and I had to um, modify a front sight base for one of his muzzle loaders, I think it was, and the hole was in the wrong location. So I had to relocate a hole and I had to countersink uh, with an end mill, you know, so it was for the socket head cap screw. Um, so basically I was using it as a precise drill press to be able to measure the, you know, distance from the holes. And then I was able to use it just an end mill to, you know, cut the edge off and then kind of clean it up. So I use it mostly for drilling, tapping, things like that, and then modifying small parts because it's not a very big machine. I don't do the 80% stuff. Um, and then I will also do slide serrations from time to time or slide cuts. Uh, but a lot of times it's for little things around the shop, uh, making brackets, making small parts, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I, yeah, I don't use it full time. It's not my full time income stream or anything like that, but it's a very, very handy machine because when you need it, you need it. Um, sometimes I'll use it to clean up bedding projects on rifle stocks. Again, I thought I had something around, but I don't, but uh, it, it's a great, great mill. I love it. I've used the snot out of it. It's been a phenomenal piece and I actually want to upgrade some of it. I want to get a Power X access motor from Grizzly, and then they also have a Power Z um, drive that you can raise and lower the head. Uh, so I do want to get those things as well, but I gotta save up a little bit because, like I said, it's not my full-time gig, so I gotta make sure I'm not putting too much money into it. What is your preferred zero distance for suppressor height sights on a handgun with a red dot? Does this match the zero for the red dot? So first things first, I believe there's another question about a red dot zero as well. So I'll get into that in that question too. But my preferred distance for a red dot zero is 10 yards. And I'll get into a separate video of why because I've gotten a lot of topics about why versus seven versus 15 versus 25. I prefer 10. I have ballistic data that led me to make my decision that I will share with you, but I prefer 10. Now, what distance do I prefer for the iron sights? The reality is we don't always get to decide, especially if you're an agency where you're issued a set of sights or you don't have the means to change your sights. You basically get your suppressor height sights or whatever appropriate height for you because we talk about that in this video here, should you co-witness and slave them and you should not, they're separate. But that was a really popular video for us. So we don't always get the choice. They come or they are. So how I zero iron sights basically is I'll do a walk back drill. I'll start close to make sure I'm hitting point of aim, point of impact. I'll walk back to where everything is aligned. And then as I continue to walk back, if I start to know that, okay, after 25 yards, maybe I have to do a slight hold, I will know where they are zeroed from the factory. And then I know what I have to hold you know, afterwards. Now the reality is most people aren't gonna be shooting good enough at 25 yards to really truly understand. Most people are shooting groups like 
You know, let's be real. But if you're capable of holding better groups at 25 and you can understand the hold, like I've had some guns where I know that at 25 yards, it's a solid six o'clock hold. As I move closer, no big deal. So zeroing uh, iron sights isn't as easy. Now, can you drift the rear sight left and right to adjust for windage? Absolutely. Can you get different height sights to adjust for elevation? Absolutely. There is a formula. For those of you guys that aren't familiar, everything's in inches. It's complicated. Probably should do a separate video on that, but you have to calculate your distance to your target in inches and then the fractions of an inch that you need to make the adjustment. Uh, and then you buy different height sights. But for the most people, what they're gonna do is they're gonna shoot it, find where it's true, and then learn their holds or adjustments. So like I said, maybe that's a good separate video. But 10 yards is generally what I prefer for the red dot, and then wherever the iron sights kind of fall. As long as they can give me what I want, out to about 25 yards, I'm happy. What are some reasons or situations where a vertical foregrip or an angled foregrip makes sense or doesn't make sense on an AR? The only reason I can find for a vertical is to keep the hands off a hot barrel shroud, if that's a thing. I suppose that bolting on accessories can make someone look cool or aesthetics do play a major role. You just see it as the VFG getting in the way and the AFG is useless. It tells me where to put your sport hand, but Kevin, you've never forgot where to put your sport hand, which is good. I know you're being sarcastic. Just to add, uh, looking for reasons. Give me one sec. And you also ask about the uh, C-clamp on an AR. All right, so uh, this little guy right here, this is an SBR. Uh, this is one of my current go-to guns. It is clear for all the internet range safety officers out there. Uh, but this gun is configured very similar to how I have most of my ARs configured. So I like my Magpul furniture, and then I do have a Bravo Company uh, vertical foregrip, and this one has a slight angle to it. Now, the reason why I like it for me, me, I, my, just my opinion. When I teach rifle grip, I teach handgun grip. Basically, we have our hands together, thumbs forward, and I just separate those two for my rifle grip. I think you said something similar. Basically, you put your thumb around 11 o'clock. So all I'm doing is taking my handgun grip and I'm separating it and that vertical foregrip gives me a nice spot to do that. So I have my thumb forward. On this particular gun, I can manipulate the light, which is on the left side. Uh, with guns that have night vision devices, I typically have those switches on the 12 o'clock. So I can manipulate my night vision device, can manipulate my white light. Uh, or on some guns, I, I don't really know if I have anything left with a 12 o'clock switch, but that's certainly fine if you do. But for me, I just like this. It's a little bit more comfortable for me ergonomically. Now, do I have some guns that don't have it? Yep, and I can do something very similar. I just basically wrap my fingers here, have my thumb forward. Works just fine too. But for me, I just like it. It feels a little bit more ergonomic for me, so that's why I like it, and it allows me to have kind of that modified handgun grip now up here and still manipulate my light and everything else. Now, the other reason that I also like having a vertical foregrip is for weapon retention purposes. When we used to do use of force training and we would have a red gun set up, I found in certain situations when we're doing like force on force, uh, it was a little bit easier for me to maintain control and pull the gun away with the vertical foregrip. Now, is that necessary? Not 100% no, because I can always just slide right back to the magwell to use it as a leverage point. It was easier for me to pull like this or like this versus you know like this in a weapon retention situation. So what does it come down to? It comes down to personal preference. Uh, if you want a hand stop of a reference point where to go, great. Now, the angled foregrips, again, some people just like them for comfort. That's their thing. I personally don't. I don't use hand stops. I don't use the angled foregrips. I generally like just a shorter, vertical foregrip like this guy from Bravo Company. This is probably my favorite vertical foregrip because it has just that slight 
angle right there and I just find it to be very comfortable and I can get the gun right into my arm, uh, shoulder, excuse me, pulling it back and I can still manipulate. Now C-clamp, that good old C-clamp, uh, why that was taught. And you go on to about, I think this is the post you made about like the vector calculus and all that stuff. I, I don't have everything pasted into the show notes, but uh, some people will teach this because it allows you to track the gun laterally a little bit better. But as far as recoil control, we want to make sure we're pulling the gun back into our shoulder, having good control. And I'll cam up just a little bit with my support arm, similar to how I do with a handgun for recoil control, and I can drive the gun no problem. Maybe we'll do a separate video on kind of fundamental rifle work or whatever, but I prefer a vertical foregrip. It works for me. If you don't like it, that's fine. It's America. You can do what you want. That's the beauty of things. All right. Uh, reasons for the seat clamp we talked about. All right. Last one that I'm able to get to for you, Kevin, because you sent a ton. If there's something that you is really, really important that you want to see on the show, make sure you note that in your email or whatever. Why do 0% of professional pictures and videos of shotguns with red dot sights have the proper comb or not have the proper comb to achieve a correct stock weld? Uh, send me some pictures because I want to see this. The few pictures that I saw, uh, most of them looked, you know, like a combat application like a Beretta 1301 with a red dot or like the Mossberg 940 is kind of hot right now and that has a, a red dot mount spot. So send me some pictures of what you are seeing. Um, I think you mentioned like some of them with like an AR mount. I didn't see any shotguns with an AR optic mount, you know, something like this on there or like a, a big AR height. But if there are, send it to me because obviously, yes, that is kind of funny. So, uh, but as far as why, I don't know. Maybe that's just what they had laying around. But send me some pictures. I want to see it. Send me some examples, please, if you do. So that is Kevin's Corner. Kevin, thank you for all of the questions. Number two, this one's from Mitch. He has an AR-15 that's wickedly overgassed. I, I feel like I should say that with a, a Boston accent. It's just a wicked gasser. Um, all right, sorry. I don't know. Uh, example, carbine buffer, M193, it ejects 1 o'clock. With an H3 buffer, it'll eject to 230. So the buffer is working a little bit. Uh, with an H3 buffer, the cheap Wolf steel cast, uh, case ejects 4 o'clock. H3 does not seem to be adequate to address the situation. Started life as a DPMS carbine, the gas block and system. Carbine uh, gas system is carbine length, and the gas block is a pinned A-frame cut down to a low profile. All right, so options. Uh, number one... You could get a different gas block, and I do have a video coming up on the Rifle Speed gas block, which is awesome. Like, they are just awesome. I can't wait. That's probably over there. Uh, I can't wait to use these because I am super impressed with what I'm seeing with the Rifle Speed gas block. I had a great conversation with the owner to learn more about the product, but that would be a phenomenal solution for you to regulate your gas. Assuming you don't want to get a new barrel, but basically it sounds like the gas port is too big, so you need to regulate it. You can either do it with a gas block. In my opinion, the best adjustable gas block I have seen so far is the rifle speed. Um, and I haven't run it yet, but just on paper, everything playing with it, I have a couple on hand. Everything looks amazing. I can't wait. Actually, I'm going to probably put one on this gun. Uh, it looks awesome. I can't wait to get that. Really excited about it. Could add additional weight or mass. Um, it would be expensive if you got, like, say, a JP variable mass carrier where you could add weights to that and then get their silent captured spring system and add weights to that. That would be pretty expensive though. And truth be told, it you might even be approaching the cost of the original DPMS carbine. Uh, the other option would be to replace the barrel with something with a more you know common size gas port 
So those are some options there. I'd like to try to limit gas to the gas block. What's the best option? Uh, my opinion, if you're looking for the most robust adjustable gas block, it'd be the rifle speed. Otherwise, there are a variety of other quality adjustable gas blocks like the Sentry or the SLR. Uh, but keep in mind, all of those need a tool, which is kind of a pain. And that's one of the cons that I don't like with adjustable gas blocks. So those are some options there. But check out uh, the rifle speed adjustable gas block video that's going to be coming up. It'll probably be later this month is what I'm guessing. Later June sometime. All right, this one's from Robert from Indiana. He's a new LE firearms instructor. What can I do to become more effective as an instructor? What other things have you learned after taking the basic class? My instructor class wasn't great. It was really more of a shooting class with various drills. And then he kind of has some other comments. Uh, and actually, I think we've emailed back and forth about maybe crossing paths at a class or whatever as well. If you're the same Robert I'm thinking of from the past. Uh, basically, you know, kind of like, I think I've talked a little bit about this on the show before, is I would think about your ability to transfer knowledge, okay? So for a lot of people, that's gonna be some general public speaking, some communication, some organizing skills. So think about what it is you are trying to teach that particular day, organize your thoughts into a structure. So here's the introduction, here is you know what we wanna accomplish, the goals of it, try to establish all that stuff and then kinda of organize it. And I use the EDIP philosophy, explain, demonstrate, imitate, practice, perform, uh, type philosophy or, you know, the demonstrate, practice, perform, you know, there's, there's different philosophies for it. But basically, I'll use something similar to that. We'll, we'll explain it, we'll demonstrate it, we'll instruct it, they will perform it, they will practice it, replicate it, and then we can go ahead and offer corrections. So try to have all of that. Now, also be aware, uh, one lesson that I give in my instructor classes, and I use that term because most of the instructor classes that I've gone to over the years are just like what you described. A shooting class, they show you some drills, but they don't really get into what to teach, how to teach, what are the things that you're gonna see when you're teaching this. And those are things that I address in my instructor class because I build this class based on my experience teaching. And I will tell you like, hey, when you're teaching this, these are what your students are gonna struggle with. These are what to look for. These are where they're gonna try to cheat. These are the why, okay? So I'm pretty passionate about that. Uh, I'm pretty proud of the class, but I'm biased, so take that for what it's worth. But have kind of an idea of what you wanna get into, have an idea of what you wanna accomplish, and then what I was gonna tell you was be aware of instructor bias. And that is, in my opinion, I see so many instructors only demonstrate things one certain way because that is what they are really good at and it makes them look super badass. But the reality is that technique may not work for all of your students. So be familiar with other techniques and you won't be as proficient with all of them, but you should be pretty solid with them. So for example, when I shoot my handgun left-handed when I'm teaching left-handed shooters, I'm not the best left-handed shooter. And they give me some grace on that. However, what I can do is I can manipulate the gun from a left-handed shooter's perspective using my left hand, and then they can understand that. Or with an AR, for example. The worst thing an instructor can do is, all right, lefties, just do everything the opposite. Well, the problem is, is that it's not exactly the opposite. The bolt catch is not on the right side of the gun. So for them to do everything the opposite, there, it's not over here. There's no mag catch over here on most guns, things like that. So we have to be aware of that. And as an instructor, become somewhat proficient with left hand and be aware of other techniques. Don't become stuck in a rut. All right, before we answer our last questions, we are gonna thank our sponsor, which is Lucky Shot. Lucky Shot brings you this episode of the QA and we appreciate their support in supplying the prize. Lucky Shot has a variety of unique glassware and gift items for either the firearms enthusiast in your life, a military veteran, 
or maybe something for yourself. They have all sorts of cool gift ideas, whether it be for the dad or recent grad or anybody that thinks stuff like this would be cool, which quite frankly, if you're watching the show, it's either you or somebody you know. Check out the link, use the coupon code. We appreciate Lucky Shot for sponsoring this episode of the QA. Now let's get back to it, where were we? This one is from Carl, handgun RDS question. We're looking to transition soon to our agency and I watched your Red Dot Zero video, which I think I put a link to earlier. We're having a discussion in-house about zero distance and I know you use 10, but wondering if you can go into more detail. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier, seven versus 10 versus 15 versus 25. And I am gonna present with you what data I found. So literally I approached it from a precision shooter perspective, meaning that I looked at it as if I was zeroing a carbine or a precision rifle. I measured my sight over bore and I started to chronograph different duty loads out of different guns. It started out as a Glock 17, which was my sample. And now I've added my Staccato P to get those different duty loads because that is my current, was my current duty gun. But those two guns I think are fairly representative of LE. Now I'm also gonna add a Glock 19 slash Glock 45 in there as I get different stuff just to have that different performance point. And then I was using an RMR as a standard for the sight over bore. But what I found was that the 10 yard zero worked best for me based on the data as far as, okay, from zero to 10 yards, what is the difference or the hold from 10 to 25 and from 25 to 50. And I found that the 10 yard zero had the least or was the flattest shooting out to about that 50 yards versus the 25, et cetera, uh, and even beyond. You know, So if we look at distances, I believe the furthest recorded handgun law enforcement shot was at like 71 yards or something like that. And as far as I know, currently to date, handgun red dot shooting, I believe the furthest recorded distance is like 41 yards, 42 yards, something like that. So if I can be close to point of aim, point of impact out to the furthest distance, that's what's optimal for me. The other part of this, why I picked 10, is most people aren't good to truly zero beyond 10 yards. My goal when I'm zeroing is one inch group at 10 yards. I can make my corrections off that. Some shooters, even instructors, are gonna struggle to get two inch groups at 10 yards, let alone your average officer might struggle to get three. So my opinion would be for the instructors out there is to zero your guns for your officers, then train them and then allow them to fine tune if they prove that they are capable of that but generally we want to zero at 10 yards. Uh, some agencies I know do seven because they found that their recruits or their officers weren't capable of shooting great groups past seven yards. Now, if you're a really good shooter, you're shooting three inch groups at 25 yards, rock on, man. If you want to make zero adjustments at 25, no problem at all. But generally speaking, I prefer 10, and we'll talk about that more in an upcoming video. Uh, this one's from Grayson. Uh, this is referenced the magazine video, these old mags video, which by the way, did crazy for us. Uh, it's over 400,000 views. You can check it out up there. It just went viral, which is awesome. Uh, but a lot of comments, and actually the next question is a comment, uh, a question from that video as well. But how did the mags hold up after the video was basically his question. And there was several comments in there about that as well. So this week I have a video dropping of the afterlife of those magazines. How did they look? How did the springs fare? Were they in good shape? Did they continue to work? All that stuff will be coming up. I'm hoping to have that dropping first week here in June. So it'll be Friday and uh, it's kind of an afterlife test fire of those, but they, they did fine. Spoiler alert. But yeah, great question. And then on that same uh, topic, in that video, you mentioned the 55 grain soft point in your video wasn't good duty ammo. Can you explain why? Genuine question. Others in the comments have made their thoughts, but I would appreciate some more insight and if you have any recommendations on self-defense ammo. Couple things. Number one, 
55 grain soft point ammo. That particular ammo is not the best. That is old federal TRU 55 grain soft point. Literally, that was like 20 year old rounds. Uh, in my opinion, that is not the best round. They don't perform the best through the you know, various barriers that the FBI listed for testing protocol. Additionally, it's a lightweight, non-bonded round, so you can lose weight once it goes through those barriers. Now, 55 grain full metal jacket like XM193 traveling at an incredible high velocity can be very damaging. We all know that, that's great. However, now we're talking about a duty load, and that 55 grain soft point is just not optimal. It's 2022, people. There are much better choices. So my go-to choices right now for a general purpose self-defense round, all around good performing round that has a lot of proven performance is Federal Bonded 62 grain. Their tactical bonded 62 grain is phenomenal ammunition. That has been in numerous officer-involved shootings and defense shootings. Uh, it also is, um, I can't remember what it is called on the hunting line, but it is bonded. I want to say it's like a bear claw. Or, no, not a bear claw. Bear claw is what's on my mind because I haven't had coffee yet. Anyways, uh, there is a bonded line on their hunting line, which is basically the same ammo, but that is phenomenal all around ammunition. Just worked great. There are several great offerings from Hornaday as well as far as bonded ammunition. However, for SBRs and other general use, uh, my other favorite and generally my go-to is Spear Gold Dot 75 grain. That 75 grain has proven to work really well in SBRs as it still expands reliably in lower velocities, which is what a trade-off of an SBR is. You get lower velocity. And those rounds are still performing very well through barriers in ballistic gel testing and officer-involved shootings. So those are good rounds. That would be my go-to. A bonded round of some type, because a lot of times, especially in the law enforcement guys out there, you're gonna be shooting potentially through barricades, barriers, whatever, and you wanna make sure that your round performs and still has good weight retention. So that, we also don't want it to turn into the proverbial drill bit where it just keeps going as well. So those are some of my recommendations. Now, a lot of people are like, 55 grain is super, I didn't realize we had so many ballistics experts in that video, but 55 grain soft point, that's not a great thing. Now, speaking of that, I did find one of our old videos, two of our old videos actually, where we interviewed ballistics expert Johan Bowden from Federal, uh, at the time ATK, now Vista Outdoors, but he is truly a ballistics expert. He conducts ballistic workshops. He is like the nation's leader really in law enforcement, military ammunition. He's one of the leaders of that. He travels all around the world uh, consulting various agencies and things like that for federal ammunition. And we did an interview with him back in 17. It was actually a two-part uh, video series where the first part we talked about handgun ammo, the second part we talked about rifle, or maybe vice versa. But anyways, those videos did not do very well. They weren't very sexy or flashy, and maybe it was me with bad thumbnails and titles. But what I'm doing is I'm editing those into a podcast. So it's gonna be a one-part podcast where I'm interviewing Johan and we're talking about the ballistics. So again, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do so. We'll have links below where you can subscribe, but that will be probably around a half hour, give or take, once I have the both episodes edited together. And there is so much ballistic knowledge in there from a guy who has truly been there and done that. I'm not gonna share his resume, but literally, um, I joke that I'm not an operator who operates operationally in operations, but Johan was an operator who operated operationally in operations. He is a legit dude uh, who has done a lot of things, uh, not only for our government, for others. And again, I'm not gonna spoil his resume. That's his business to share, but he's, I've gotten to know him over the years. He's a legit been there, done that dude. So I respect his opinion a lot. So that is gonna do it for this episode, just the six contributors to the QA. I'm gonna go ahead and throw up the rules 
for the QA, we give away a prize thanks to Lucky Shot. And our official winner is going to be question asker number four, if you guys can see that. And number four was Carl. Carl from Georgia. So Carl, we will get in touch with you uh, or email us if you're seeing this first so we can claim your prize for you. If you guys want to see your question on the show, the best way is to email us. That email address is the QA at gunsandtactics.com. Again, if you're new here, like the content, please subscribe. I want to heat, uh, see us hit 100K. If you know other people that would like the content, please share with them. Tell your gun friends, tell your fellow shooting enthusiasts, whatever about the channel. Have them subscribe as well so we can hit 100K and we can all win some cool prizes. Thank you guys very much for watching and have a great day.